0: Hey, it's Ben Gilbert. And I'm David Rosenthal. And we are the hosts of the Acquired Podcast, where we dive deep into the stories and strategies behind great companies like Berkshire Hathaway, SpaceX, and Airbnb. We're now recording all of our new episodes in video. You can watch now for free here on Spotify. The following podcast contains explicit language. February the 11th, 1990. Nelson Mandela leaves prison, holding his wife Winnie's hand. After 27 years as a political prisoner, he is walking into a future that will see him become president of a unified South Africa, freed from the racist divisions of apartheid. The white domination of power is over. Four years earlier, on a dark winter night in Cape Town, A student named Larry runs down the stairs of his grandparents' house, screaming in terror, having just seen something that he will never forget. These two events are connected in the most unexpected way. The answer lies in a strange and very South African ghost story.
1: It was as clear to me as my grandmother was at the bottom of the stairs.
0: How does it make you feel now, thinking of
1: I find it a terrifying story to retell.
0: Do ghosts exist? If not, why do we see them? I'm Danny Robbins, and this is Haunted. Episode 7, The Thing in the Attic. Let me introduce you to Larry. He's in his early 50s now. These days, he lives in London and has just the trace of his South African accent.
1: I'm not somebody who believes in ghost stories and I'm not somebody who believes particularly in the paranormal. In other words, I would want to find some form of reasonable explanation for what I experienced. He's short, kind of delicate,
0: in a rock and roll leather jacket with curly greying hair. He runs a company and exudes a quiet authority. I find it hard to make small talk, but perhaps that's because he's nervous.
1: I found it very, very difficult to speak about. My family know about it, and my wife, and a few other people.
2: If somebody else told you this story, how would you attempt to explain it, do you think?
1: I'd want them to discuss it in a therapeutic environment and to recreate the atmosphere and the mood and to understand a little bit more about their relationship with their family and their relationship with their environment and look for the key somewhere in that. So that's what we're going to do. We're going back to South Africa
0: in 1987 and a place called Musenberg, a windswept coastal suburb of Cape Town, South Africa's second biggest
1: city. Musenberg is situated in a bit of geography very oddly called false bay it's not a real bay far out if you travel away from false bay is seal island where it is the feeding ground of the great white shark it's always battled against the elements fighting a partially losing battle against the wind and against the sea and the sharks the sharks are there as a sort of presence in the distance larry was 20 and a student at the University of Cape Town. I'd moved to Cape Town against my parents' wishes. They thought that I would not be able to concentrate on my studies. They thought I was a wild child that needed monitoring and so... And were you? I think, yes. Probably, I think that probably was partly true.
0: So Larry was installed at his grandparents'. A cavernous house set a few streets back from the ocean.
1: So the house was large. It was divided into two flats, um, the downstairs and upstairs flats, and it had an attic. The downstairs flat had been where my great-grandparents lived and died, and the upstairs flat was where my grandparents had lived. And then above that was the attic, and nobody had lived in the attic.
0: Until Larry. He felt isolated, though. A long commute from the university. Hanging out at student bars meant hitchhiking home along unlit, lonely roads, waiting for someone to take pity and pick him up. And even within the house, he felt a sense of isolation from the two old people he shared it with.
1: They were very non-parental sort of grandparents. You know, they liked doing the things that they did, which was playing golf and rummy. Um, Did um, you like them? Uh, I wasn't particularly close to them. I didn't feel particularly warmly about them.
2: Did you feel that they liked you?
1: Uh, No, I don't think so. I think they sort of tolerated it. So Larry
0: kept himself to himself, sleeping on a mattress on the floor of the attic at the apex of this tall old house. The house itself feels like a character in Larry's story gothic and unfriendly, staring out mournfully on a
1: sea full of predatory sharks. It seemed to kind of absorb the wind that pervaded the rest of the suburb. It felt porous, so not a containing place, not a comfortable place, not a safe place that it might erode or crumble at any time. People had been ill inside that house and had died inside that house. Um, Tell me more about that. Well, my great-grandmother had been bedridden for a decade and had lived in the flat beneath us, unable to move. And she'd been looked after by a woman who lived in the house with us called Hester, who was a woman of uh, mixed-race origins.
2: Would she have been described as a servant?
1: Absolutely, yeah, a maid or a servant.
0: Remember, this was the 1980s, and the country was still in the grip of apartheid black and white south africans lived segregated lives what was it like to grow up in a state that had become an international pariah where the privileged lives of the few in communities like musenberg depended on the brutal subjugation of the many
2: you were essentially i guess a kind of a privileged white student living in quite a privileged area absolutely this might sound like a stupid mm. question but how how did that make you feel
1: I felt like a student more than anything. I think that's an odd thing. I think the idea that everybody automatically had a political conscience is untrue. For the most part, I was somebody who was interested in music and drinking and shagging like the majority of students. Really, and you know, it's an uncomfortable thing to say, those selfish interests, those personal interests, trumped uh, the political environment. Although I was immersed in that environment and it was having an impact on me regardless of my consciousness of it. There was a sense of unease about the whole of South Africa. Musenberg
0: had become a town built on fear in a state controlled by it. Black South Africans lived in fear of the police their lives curtailed by a state of emergency and white South Africans lived in fear that one day their gilded existence would be taken away the tide would turn and the winds of change would sweep them away. The house now feels like a metaphor for apartheid-era South Africa. Crumbling, cracking, porous and sickly. A place in the throes of death. And perhaps Larry felt that in his bones and that background of fear, the low daily hum of tension and buried guilt, fed into what happened to him that night. What he saw, was it a ghost or something stranger than that? What is without doubt is that it was the most frightening thing he had ever seen.
2: Let's talk about the night. Yeah. The night it happened.
1: So the night it happened, I, unusually for me, hadn't been drinking. It was um, an important factor for me in remembering the story because I might have put it down to some kind of drink-related phenomenon, but it wasn't. It was a very, very windy night, and the wind seemed to get caught up in the roof and against all the windows of the attic. It had windows all around it. It was quite an exposed place. So I woke up thinking that it was time to wake up.
0: Larry had no alarm clock. This was long before the reassurance of reaching for your mobile phone.
1: And I walked down stairs from the attic to the landing, which was directly outside my grandparents' bedroom. And I looked at the clock above the the table which was on the landing, and saw that it was 20 past two. So I went back to sleep, and I then woke up again. And I was anxious about oversleeping because I knew I had to get up at a certain time to get on the train to get to university in time. And I, so I woke up again thinking, well oh, it must be time to get up. And I went downstairs, and it was quarter past four. And I went back and fell into another deep sleep and woke up thinking, oh, my God, it's time. It must be time to get up now. But I went back, and this time, when I looked up at the clock, it was twenty past two. I was concerned at this time. I didn't yeah. know how that had happened. The light was on in the hallway, so the 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 clock was... Clear and easy to read. Well, I thought I must have made a mistake.
2: But how did you feel? Did you feel? I felt ready confused.
1: Work? My memory is feeling confused at that point.
0: Larry says it felt like time was yo-yoing uneasily. He returned to the attic,
1: back to
0: his mattress on the floor,
1: back up for 1:15 yeah. or thereabouts and then falling asleep again, but feeling a a sense of nervousness and then coming downstairs and it being 3.45. But this time, I was becoming quite alarmed because I was genuinely not sure of what was happening. And I was convinced that every time I had been awake.
0: This is key for Larry. His certainty that he was awake each time he checked the clock. And yet... We must be alert to the tricks the sleeping mind plays. Natural phenomena such as false awakening and sleep paralysis, where our mind jams in a no-man's land between sleep and waking. The hallucinatory images of our dreams playing out in the real world. It would be easy to explain Larry's story in that way, were it not for one thing.
1: When I came down the last time, I encountered my grandmother, who I had woken up by this stage. And I suppose that was a genuinely terrifying moment for me because my grandmother made clear to me that she had heard me going up and down the stairs all of those times. So it wasn't an hallucination. There was evidence that I had been doing that and seeing this back and forth on the clock.
0: One of the certainties we have in life is time. But for Larry, the hands of the clock had become elastic, fluid, flowing back and forth like the dark, shark-infested waves of False Bay. If we cannot trust hours, minutes, and seconds, everything unravels. Things fall apart, and chaos rushes in. But Larry could not say any of this to his grandmother, the creeping panic he felt. She was not the sort of person you tell your nightmares to.
1: And anyway, he was no child. So I turned away from my grandmother and went back up the stairs, and the stairs were dark, and there was a dog leg, so I led away from the landing and turned up into to the right, into the dark of the last stairs as it approached the uh, attic where I was sleeping. And on the stairs, ahead of me, was...
0: Coming up. The thing in the attic. Larry turned the corner that would lead him back to bed. Shadows spilled from the open attic door, escaping the room like the contents of Pandora's box. Now, Thirty years later, and a continent away, Larry visibly tenses as we reach this part of his story, a moment that seems to hover between horror
1: and madness. And on the stairs, ahead of me, was a creature about six or seven feet tall, um, with a long body, and outstretched arms. It was a gollywog, which I know is an enormously inappropriate toy now, but at that stage was a term in common use, and I stopped and looked into the face of this creature, which I remember very, very clearly had embroidered uh, mouth, and I remember particularly the black embroidery defining the fingers on its hands, on its, at the end of its outstretched arms. The golly one,
0: an old-fashioned children's doll, a crude, stereotypical depiction of a black person. And now, apparently, Come to life.
1: I screamed, but a sort of swallowed scream as this creature fell towards me to try and embrace me. And then it disappeared. My grandparents were downstairs and asked me what had happened, and I couldn't talk about it.
2: You look Uh, quite shaken even talking about it now.
1: Yeah.
0: Larry's discomfort has two distinct aspects. There's the emotional effort of reliving the sheer terror he felt, but also his awareness, thirty years on, of the toxic nature of the thing he saw. Did you have gollywog toys?
1: As a child I'd had gollywog toys and had thought nothing of it. And nobody had ever, until later, it had never been explained to me what these gollywogs actually represented. They were just they were just gollywog toys.
2: Do you think by that age, by 20, that you were aware of it as an object that I knew it had at that huge stage, connotations?
1: At that stage, I knew it already. Mm-hmm. At that stage, I knew that uh, what the connotations were, and I knew that I knew what it meant and what it was meant to represent, and I knew that it was an unacceptable object.
2: And here it was writ large, a, a giant version of it. Yeah.
0: I told you this was a ghost story, and though it has all the hallmarks of that, you may be wondering if the word ghost is right. Larry struggles to find a word for what he saw, flitting between the vague terms thing or creature. And I'm reminded of a story by the horror writer H.P. Lovecraft, where a man can describe the manifestation he witnesses only with the words, it was the unnameable.
2: Did it feel corporeal? Did it feel like a a, a flesh and blood thing?
1: It felt like it had animus. In other words, it Mm -hmm. it was capable of moving, Mm -hmm. so it felt alive. It didn't feel like it was flesh and blood. It felt it was stuffed and made of material, but it felt alive and it felt extremely physical. There was nothing of the apparition about it. It didn't feel um, that there was anything faint about it.
2: Other than the shock of seeing this thing, Mm. what was it about it that most scared you?
1: I think I had a real sense that it meant to do me harm, but that the harm was somehow bound up in a sort of false cheerfulness, because it had a very cheerful expression on its face. The horror of it was a combination of its wanting to do me harm and also embrace me. I had no sense of it wanting to maim me or hurt me in any way, but that the embrace itself was terrifying, that it wanted, to—it wanted, I suppose, to draw me into its world with something that actually felt like a perverse form of affection. If anyone else was telling me this, I
0: think I'd instantly dismiss it. But there's something about Larry, this quiet, thoughtful man. Every fibre of his rational being resists. And yet he really believes that the creature had stepped from his nightmares, broken the fourth wall and come into his world. To try and understand the source of that nightmare, I felt I needed to hear more about the nature of the gollywog's role in South Africa, from a far more first-hand perspective.
3: My name is Khao Tebali, the full name, but it's abbreviated as Khao. Uh, the surname is Nodoba. I am 53 years old. I'm a black South African male, uh, employed at the University of Cape Town in South Africa.
0: That's Larry's old university. Khao's a lecturer there. He doesn't know Larry, but I sent him an account of the story. Khao, believes the doll, was hugely symbolic and became tied up in the fear that white South African society felt in the late 80s as they saw a growing black protest movement.
3: That black self-pride, which was a move towards an egalitarian society, was then spent on the side of government to then say to white South Africans that actually this black power is actually here to come and wipe you out. Through black power and black assertion, it is meant that white people will be driven into the sea. Now, I'm saying all this to then explain why a white young man through being exposed to All nice white dolls, and the black odd-out doll with some kinky hair, which will always be naughty. So all the negative things. So that, as much as there's a doll, as much as there is a toy, but what it does, it reinforces in the child that this odd black doll is actually a symbol of what this black power means: negativity, naughtiness. Don't associate with it regressive, troublemaking. All the negative stereotypes were reinforced through that doll in your lung, your young Larry. So it therefore would not be unreasonable that Larry would then have the kind of nightmares that he has because in the mind of little Larry, right, you really can't blame him because he is what we call a microcosm and a reflection of how the society was engineered ideologically.
0: I ask Larry if he feels that this is what lies at the heart of his story, a subconscious childhood fear of the other side of South African society.
1: That's a very tempting explanation, that all around me was what was in South Africa at that time called the Swat Khafar, which is Afrikaans for the black terror. That is true. And it feels like a way of saying, well, you know, I was engaging with that threat and engaging with that danger, my repression about who I was and the way that I lived in that community. And that may be true, and yet it still doesn't go far enough. Perhaps the word ghost is right.
0: The thing in the attic is the ghost of an era and a political system designed to rule by division like one of those crisis apparitions. A person seen thousands of miles away, moments before their death. The giant gollywog comes as Harbinger, a prelude to the end of apartheid. It's tempting to explain this story by saying all the action took place in Larry's mind. That his subconscious was at war with itself and threw up this traumatic hallucination. But he
1: still can't see it like that. It's hard for me to get beyond the terror and to distance myself from it sufficiently to say, well, I just, I made it up. I dreamt it. It was never there. It felt to me afterwards in thinking about it that somehow this creature was responsible for the whole series of events so from behind the scenes it had been playing with time in order for me then to be open to its its arrival
0: the legacy of that night leaves a complicated indentation in larry's psyche
2: do you feel that people would judge you for this
1: you mean because of the inappropriateness of the? I, I didn't imagery. actually,
2: though. You're right. It's very. It's, it's, it's a hard, a complex, thing to tell. and loaded Sorry, I, I meant, the, would people judge you and think he's mad? He's making things up. You know, these things don't happen. But, but of course, look, there is the whole complicated layer of the gollywog as well.
1: That would be that would be my reason for not. I'm ashamed, as you know, like a lot of South Africans, I feel ashamed about having grown up and privileged from what was an extraordinarily savage time. Um, in South Africa's history. Um, a sense of shame about that and a sense of bewilderment that, that you know, I, I lived in that world that feels sort of both distant and and uh, and close.
2: Is there a collective guilt, do you think, from people of your I, age?
1: I think so. I think so. I, I definitely think that that's, that's the case, whether you acknowledge it or not. I spend large amounts of my time not acknowledging because I, my life carries on. But when I do think about it, I do feel guilty about it.
2: So do you think people of your age feel like they woke up from a dream? That they'd lived in this dream that was based on division and mistreatment and, and abuse and, and that you woke up and became aware of that?
1: I, it, it's worse than that. If it were a dream that gives it a kind of... It gives a kind of an otherworldly... It was very worldly. It's, it, it's just a question of what you block out. I suppose. I think that that's the default position for the way that people live and think. You narrow your world in a way that makes it livable for you. I think that everybody does that. But narrowing your world to make it livable within that context feels slightly alarming. It's a kind of an act of unknowing, a withdrawal from knowing. But the subterfuge is that it feels like a something that you're not conscious of. I guess this story is ultimately
0: about the power of fear. The gollywog was subtly, subconsciously, a tool of fear. And that night, in some form, it came to life. But whether ghosts, demons, creatures, or things in the attic are real or not seems irrelevant person who sees them, because their fear is. Afterwards, I felt almost guilty for making Larry relive that night. He seemed desperate to get away and reconnect with the sanity of the outside world. As we parted, he said something that stuck with me. He told me that whenever he asked himself the question, was it real? He always came back to the same answer. It's real because it happened to me. Thank you to Larry for telling me his story. If you've had a ghostly experience, we'd like to hear from you. Send an email to haunted at panoply.fm or find me on Twitter or Facebook. Thank you to everyone who's reviewed or rated the show so far. If you've enjoyed it, please tell someone you know. Haunted is a Chalk and Blade production for Panoply. It was written and presented by me, Danny Robbins. The producers are Ruth Barnes, Laura Sheeter and Simon Barnard. Music and sound design is by Pascal Wise. Jesse Brown painted our artwork. Special thanks to Ryan Dilley and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Until next time, sleep well.
3: Meet your next audiobook listen, All Hallows by Christopher Golden. This supernatural thriller is eerily set on Halloween night in 1984. Family dramas are coming to a head, a neighborhood is falling apart, and four kids who don't belong show up to add a creepy level of mystery to an already unsettled scene. That's all before the real thrill and gore begin. This deadly thriller by New York Times bestselling author Christopher Golden is now available on Spotify.